Hello, and welcome to the Proofs to Learn podcast with myself, James Shaw, and Michael McLaughlin. Life doesn't come with a manual, and the premise of Proofs to Learn is following the loss of close family is to pass on some life lessons to our respective children. Issue being, we've only lived our lives so far, so why not get some lessons from other people that have been there, done that, and got the t-shirt. If you like the podcast, please remember to subscribe, like, and follow. It really does make a big difference. On this episode of Privacy Learn, we have the privilege to be joined by Joe Seddon. Joe is a technology entrepreneur and is the founder of Zero Gravity, a tech company that supports low opportunity students into universities and careers. We spoke of putting yourself in uncomfortable situations in order to grow, the importance of a network, improving by 1% every week, not following the crowd, and having grit and resilience. As always, we hope you enjoy, and please remember to follow, review, like, and subscribe. So, Joe, welcome to the Proofs Learn podcast. Awesome to have you on. First question: How are you? Good. Yeah, it's been a been a busy week. Um, as we were speaking about just before we hit the record button, currently raising Zero Gravity's Series A funding round, and you no know, trying to raise investment for an early stage startup whilst keeping the wheels spinning on the business is a massive massive challenge and and something that often a lot of young founders probably aren't prepared for this is my very first job i haven't had any experience before this so um yeah it's been a busy couple of months but super excited to be able to you know, take the business to the next stage and they're uh, really excited to be speaking to you guys today about my uh my journey to this point no fantastic no well fingers crossed way i wish you the best of luck i'm sure you'd be absolutely fine but uh no good luck to you and as i say thank you very much for coming on really really appreciate it so as you touched on there, you're CEO and founder of Zero Gravity, which is a tech company that um, supports low-income students into universities and careers. Awesome concept. Uh, but before we get into that, bearing in mind previously learned, it's all about life lessons. What advice were you given when you were younger? And is there any life lessons that you've learned to date? Good question. Um, so Zero Gravity is all about unlocking talent from all backgrounds. So I've always been a a big fan of the concept of, of mentorship and passing wisdom down, not only across generations, but just down through people who are one step ahead of you on the journey. And uh, I think mentors can take many forms. Like when I think back to my early life, I was brought up in a single parent family in a small town in West Yorkshire. And my, my biggest mentor in many ways was my grand. Uh, she was my, my mum's mum and she you know, lived relatively locally and she sort of took me under her wing and tried to cultivate my ambition early doors. She was really interested in politics and economics and sort of ideas and being to university herself. And, and she really cultivated those passions within me. And, and her advice uh, to me was, was always to uh, consistently try and redefine the art of the possible and, and, and not be constrained by you know, the opportunities or cultures of the local area. And, and that's a big thing because now I grew up in a small town in West Yorkshire where it wasn't normal to go to a top university and it wasn't normal to aspire to be a, a tech entrepreneur. If you walk around Morley in West Yorkshire and start banging about being an entrepreneur, people will just think that's a polite way of saying you're unemployed, <laughs> which is, uh, which sounds ridiculous, but that's the truth. So like doing these things is completely rogue decision for someone from a town like that. But my, my grad always pushed me to try and continue to redefine the art of the possible in my own life. And if it wasn't for her, I might never have you know, looked up from, from what was immediately in front of me. So um, yeah, she was my biggest mentor and inspiration early 
in life. So I think mentors can take many forms. It doesn't have to be the CEO of let's see, 100 company. It could be a family member, a friend, or someone you used to meet in the pub. Mm, perfect. So growing up, were you aware of that, um, the difference there? I mean, like, obviously you said they're from a small town. Is it Yorkshire way? I'm not. Were you aware of the differences culturally or aspirational to try and get to that? Was it obviously not a glass scene, it's where you are now, but how, how, did, how did you see it at the time? Interesting question. So I, I grew up in Morley, which is a sort of post-industrial town in the UK. It's, it's between Leeds and, and Wakefield. But the big trickinesses, it, I never grew up thinking I was kind of like working class or from a low opportunity background because everyone else was like me. Now, in like in Morley, like there's not a huge amount of you know, wealth inequality. If your dad in Morley's driving a BMW, that means that your family are doing pretty pretty good for yourself. It, it wasn't until I went to Oxford University and met people who lived in multi-million pound townhouses in London and went on kind of you no know, regular skiing holidays that I kind of was introduced to the kind of you know, wealthy no elite in this country. No, in Morley, there's very few of those people. So I, I never grew up thinking I was you know, disadvantaged in any way or from a low opportunity background. So I never conceptualized myself as working class even. I, I mean, there's, there's no class consciousness amongst young people nowadays. Even if you're growing up in the low income households, that's just not a kind of terminology you would use anymore. Like the, the structure of the economy has changed. So I think a lot of young people don't see themselves in, in those terms. And I think that can create a barrier because a lot of people don't know what opportunities are out there. They, they, they don't. They often they often think that what happens in their local community is the kind of boundaries of the possible, and actually that there's far more out there than the what what young people realise. To think because there is no class consciousness, I think a lot of young people find quite confusing some of the language that comes out of university and employers. Now, when university and employers start banging on about diversity or widening participation or outreach and access, those terms don't make sense to most 16-year-olds. If you speak to a 16-year-old in Sunderland, they they didn't see themselves as like a charity case or a diversity hire or a widening participation student. Like That jargon just doesn't land with their life experience. And most of the people in the local area are like them. So I I do think that presents a a challenge. I, I think a lot of the discourse that happens in London is completely out of kilter with the experiences of young people in this country, there's massive amounts of wealth inequality in the UK. But whether young people perceptibly feel that, people growing up in small towns and suburbia, I'm not too sure. Yeah, do you know what? You touched on something that I was going to ask as well about the opportunity. How do you know an opportunity is there if you don't know it's there? Do you know? Do you know I was going to say, we had someone on recently who was a, um, a national instructor. I never knew that kind of job existed that someone's fallen into that. Role, right? How do you know that opportunity's there without knowing it's there in the first place? Then once you know it, you've then got to go and get it. You know, it's it's easier said than done, right? Yeah, that's that goes with your great quote, Joe. Talent is spread evenly, but opportunity is not. I think that just hits the fundamental piece. Exactly. I think it's uh, a good maxim because it, it's true. I think it's one of the most fundamental facts of life. And you can only be what you can see at the end of the day. So, like, if you're not growing up around loads of people who went to university or loads of professionals, like, why would you ever aspire to do those things? And and this is why I think the internet and technology can be such a leveler if it's used properly. Because if you can get 
into the smartphones of young people and introduce them to opportunities, to people, to ideas that they will just never be exposed to in the local community, you can change that. And that's why I started Zero Gravity as a tech-first organization, because I believe in the power of technology to make that change. So Zero Gravity, a bit of a, oh, sorry, it might be the same question. It might be the same question. Could you give us a bit of an overview of Zero Gravity and like um, the, the way it's being used and, and what it can do? As you mentioned, it all starts with the idea that the talent is everywhere, opportunity is not. Everyone knows that the what background you come from often defines your opportunities in life, but things that have to be that way. And you just think about the UK, even though um, we have huge issues in this country with inequality and being able to do better than your parents, the things have changed quite a lot in the past 100 years. Now, 100 years ago, it would have been impossible for someone like me to go to Oxford University. Then in 1923, only 9% of students at Oxford in state schools. And nowadays it's 70%. So there's, there's a lot of way to go. Things haven't changed enough, but they have changed quite radically over the past 100 years. And my question is, now what does the next 30 years look like? Can we continue to make this country a more dynamic place where no matter what background you're from, you have a chance of unlocking your potential? And, and zero gravity is the kind of answer to that question, which is we're building technology that identifies talented young people from low opportunity backgrounds whilst they're still at school and powers them into top universities and careers to not only do something which is right about giving people access to opportunity, but actually to say to universities and employers, and we can do a job in terms of finding you the exact sort of people that you want to admit into your institutions. Now, every employing university is talking about they want talent from all backgrounds. We're providing the business solution to, to do that. And uh, it's been a wild ride. When I first started Zero Gravity, we supported around 150 students per year. And nowadays we've supported over 8,000 students from low opportunity backgrounds and top universities. And I think that shows the power of technology to really scale something. And, and that's the beauty of a technology. It doesn't have to be constrained to a local area or a small group of people. The technology, when it works, can perform miracles. And, and that's what I'm trying to do with Zero Gravity, I suppose. Finally solve that question at breaking the link between background and opportunity. I would have loved something like that when I was growing up because it just wasn't there, you know. And as I said to you earlier, I didn't know there were opportunities there. A lot of it's got to rest in the individual as well, right, to have that talent and drive. So what makes talent then? I mean, like I say, you, you've got an algo that picks out the talent. What what defines talent to you? Question, obviously, also a question of of life in many ways and, and and the way that we define talent is we, we try and use data to put people's performance in the context of where they're from if you get three a stars in your a levels but you live in a multi-million townhouse in west london and you went to Eton college for school and then you've had private education almost since the day of, of your birth that three A stars maybe it's impressive, but not that impressive given the amount of resources you've had invested in you. Well, if you were a kid from South Shields and you grew up in a, a really low income area, neither of your parents have been to university, you're struggling with financial anxiety, you've never left the country before, you go to an underperforming state school where teachers don't turn up to lessons, and you get an A and two Bs at A level. Actually, that's pretty impressive. You might not look as good on paper as that student who went to Eton. But when you look at the performance in context, that person from South Shields is a massive 
overperformer. And, and my hypothesis is that overperformance is the key driver in, in life. No relative performance, performance in the context of where you're from, not performance in absolute terms. So when we look for students who are in the bottom 40% of backgrounds, but the top 15% of performance when you look at it in the context of, of where they're from. And, and that leads to a very diverse group of people. Now we have you know, second generation uh, immigrants living in council flat towers in London. Uh, and we also have you no know, white working class students living in small towns in Wales, where the, the closest city around three hours away on a broken down train that doesn't have automatic doors where you're going to reach inside the carriage and, yeah. and open the handle from the inside. So it, it is a, a diverse audience of lots of different types of people, but united in the fact that they're all ambitious and want to defy the odds and do something that often no one in their family or local area has done before. That's brilliant. It's an absolutely fantastic idea. It genuinely, generally is. I mean, like, I'm very much, oh, when I was brought up, my, um, especially, well, both my parents, my dad more so, was very, led towards the left, very much. Opportunities, education, get that behind you, whatever like that. So to people to have that opportunity and run with it is brilliant. It's really, I think it's fundamental. But one thing, I, you know, you'd probably be able to answer this yourself, but with the social mobility, how, how say for example, you move up into is class the right word different class how that must be a challenge in its own right all of a sudden you're from one background you're moving into another another facet now how, how do you deal with that it's a challenge like i remember when i was you know, going to university and moving from morley in west yorkshire to oxford that was a massive transition and also a, a very different type of transition to what a lot of people might think like i had a lot of imposter syndrome going to a posh university where i was a little bit out of place and you probably wouldn't believe it now but i had a bit of a strong yorkshire accent at the time i was worried if the sort of the posh southerners at university would be able to understand what i was saying or or socially accepted for who i who i was so there's all that imposter syndrome of stepping into an alien environment that you don't feel completely at home in but the thing that a lot of people don't talk about is also the kind of guilt you get about like leaving your roots behind. And when I got my offer at Oxford, like a lot of my mates from back home and my family members would joke that I was becoming posh and I was sort of fleeing my Yorkshire roots for a different type of, of life. And and in many ways I was. And I was, you know, going to a different culture. I, I was doing something that I hope would transform my access to opportunities in the future. But that did create a lot of guilt in a way because I felt like I was leaving part of my identity behind. So I think the difficult thing about social mobility is you have kind of imposter syndrome on one side, and then you have this social mobility guilt on the other. You almost get trapped in between those two things. And I think that can be really difficult when it comes to understanding your own identity. I, it's probably only now at the age of 26 that I kind of like, I'm, I feel more at home with who I am. I can accept that both of those things are part of my identity both where i'm from my upbringing some of my like more traditional yorkshire values like i'm i'm quite direct um i, I love football at the weekends i go and watch my team whole city and sort of throw beers around in the concourse and stuff like that which a, a lot of people probably wouldn't expect it's a sort of uh tech startup founder who went to oxford to say but that is part of my identity and what i enjoy but i'm also that person who and i did go to a posh university and you know, i do live a weird lifestyle now down in central london where I hang around with 
know, billionaires sometimes who've invested in my company. So I, I've done sort of both things and that, those are both parts of who I am. And that was a difficult thing to grapple with, but I'm, I'm finally at home with it. And I think that's a big challenge a lot of socially mobile people have to go through. How do you retain that sense of your roots, but also accept the new life you're stepping, stepping into as well? Given that, what, what sort of things shouldn't, and if we, we're obviously looking to pass down kind of a bit of advice to, to sort of kids, and obviously I think that my daughter's generation, and I think you hear the male on the head, they don't see necessarily sex, colour, creed, accent, religion. They just see a person. I think that's, that's good that that's changing through. But that sort of change, as you say, how, what sort of ways do you think you can help people deal with that? What sort of things should to the kids, maybe 10, thinking about what, what what sort of things can they do to help that and, and, and avoid imposter syndrome, for example? First thing you can do is about like reconceptualizing what imposter syndrome is, which is like imposter syndrome is a challenge to overcome. But actually, in many ways, you want to be feeling imposter syndrome because it means you're going beyond the kind of bounds of what feels comfortable. If you walk through life consistently feeling comfortable in the environment you're in, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough. So I would say to a young person, put yourself in situations where you feel imposter syndrome. And when you do feel that emotion, realize it's a process you're going through. And yet it feels horrible. It's not very nice. But actually, it's something you have to go through to get to the point of of comfort and it's it's a sign of progress so i, I would get young people to the imposter syndrome as a positive force in their life rather than seeing negative that's that's holding them back um i think the other piece of advice i would give as well is about like not following the crowd i i think it's, it sounds obvious but i think for young people this is particularly difficult because they've grown up in a social media driven generation well almost from the age of three or four, you've probably got access to a smartphone or uh, or an iPad and your friends are using social media apps. And it can be very easy to follow the crowd because social media platforms and the incentives they create are often about doing what most people like. They're doing the most in vogue thing. But a thing to be, be successful and follow your passion, you often have to be a contrarian. You often have to take the path that hasn't been followed and do the things that other people don't like to do sometimes take unpopular decisions. So I would encourage you know, a young person to to not follow the crowd and you know, be brave in the choices you're making. And 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 that kind of apprehension you'll feel sometimes, maybe the kind of cynicism that people around you, whether it's your friends or family, again, a bit like imposter syndrome. I think that's something to be embraced rather than something to be avoided. I, f- I think inherently as well, like you're saying there about difficult decisions. I think you know when you've done. It might not be an easy choice, but you know when you've done the right choice, you know, or the right decision. And and when you do make the wrong decision, you know it in, intuitively. You know you've done something that you shouldn't have done. But And also, touching about imposter syndrome as well, I guess if you're feeling it, other people are feeling it as well. Exactly. Like, there's so many people, or people like you, fighting this silent battle in their heads that you can't see. Like, it, it's, it's not very fashionable when you're going through a a new situation where you're feeling imposter syndrome tell people about it because it's a little bit embarrassing. Like it, it's very easy for me to turn around now at the age of 26 and say there was a really big transition going to Oxford University 
And uh, I was trapped between imposter syndrome and sociability guilt. That's easy for me to say now that I've graduated and doing something else. I, I wasn't talking about that at the time when I was 18, because that would have been embarrassing. I'd, I'd turned up to the book on Freshers Week and said, is anyone else feeling imposter syndrome here? That would be an embarrassing conversation to, to have, right? So it, it's, it's often much easier to understand what you've been through in retrospect. And that does make it hard, but I think knowing that other people are fighting a silent battle as well, that's going to be helpful for some degree. Yeah, perfect. Uh, 100%, 100%. So talk about zero gravity. Um, I mean, I look on the website, your missions and values really resonate. So in terms of stand up straight, run towards danger, change it up, make it happen. Is that your principles and values coming through? And how do you bring that onto the work environment for other people to tag along? Do you look for people that have that same values as you? Percent. I'm a big believer in the power of culture. Um, like I, I know it's cliche, but there's that famous Peter Drucker quote, isn't there, about the culture eat strategy for breakfast mm. every time. And I, I think that's so true, especially in kind of smaller startup organizations, because if you're running a small business or a startup, like you have to defy the odds in order to succeed. Like it's actually, it's more likely that you're going to fail statistically than you are to succeed. So you have to be an odds defying organization. And I think the only way you can do that is by having a, a winning culture, a, a culture which is in that top 1% because you have to get the best out of people and do something that no one's done before. So when I was growing Zero Gravity, I, I tried to think about what kind of culture do I want to create at this organization? Not just in terms of like the team members that I work with, but also the members using the platform as well. Like, what what do we want a zero gravity member to feel when they're actually on this platform? And I came up with those four value names, which you you read out, and I I, I tried to make them authentic to me and the things that I really appreciated and thought were valuable, but all to make them substantial as well. Because I, I think a lot of corporates spout a lot of nonsense about culture. Like everyone will kind of give it some credence but then they'll, they'll come up with a bunch of values which like don't really mean anything like you know values like you know integrity compassion and um, you know, be nice to people and it's like sure but like those should just be the defaults of human behavior right like everyone should value those things and maybe 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 if you're in a particular industry where those things are missing those things are are, are substantial but for most industries like that should be a given like, your values have to be things that are distinctive to you and make you stand out. So I, I tried to come up with values that were were unique, and that's why we gave them the funny names, but also things that people would potentially disagree with as well. And when we come to hire people, we have this culture deck, which kind of articulates our company culture and has the stuff like the values, and we send it out to people. I kind of silently hope that you know, maybe 30 40% of people getting that deck will read it and think, wow, zero gravity is not for me. This is not what I like. Because I see that as a good thing, because that means that the values in there have substance. Like zero gravity shouldn't be for everyone. Like you can't build something for everyone at the end of the day. Like I want to attract a certain type of person to work here, but I hope some people will look at those values and think those aren't for me. I hope some people look at the values and think, wow, that's me all over. This is exactly the sort of organization who gets who I am. So yeah, I think your values have to have substance in order to be meaningful. If you're talking about things that everyone values, but there's no point. Mm -hmm. I guess as well, there's going to be a fine line, isn't it? I mean, like, so obviously as the company grows, you're going to have to get those values clearer, I guess, and more people see it. But you also need 
a cognitive diversity as well from different approaches and people have got different opinions that feeds in to help the sphere gets bigger as well, right? The cognitive diversity is a massive driver of performance. I think everyone knows that nowadays. Is that you know, great? Uh, Matthew Syed book, which came out I think five or six years ago, which we yeah. just sort of spoke a lot about that. I think the easiest way to get cognitive diversity is to hire people from lots of different backgrounds because the different ways of thinking often comes out of having different experiences. So at Zero Gravity, we try and look for people who've, who've come from lots of different backgrounds and, and we do that deliberately, not because it's in keeping with our mission, but also because we think we can get the best people by doing that. So that, that same data-driven approach we use to identify students, we also use in our own recruitment process. We've also started hiring members from our own platform now as, as well. We, we've actually got someone starting in June this year who joined our platform at the age of 17. Uh, she grew up in care, won a, a place at Cambridge University for computer science, and she's now going to be starting as a as a software engineer at Zero Gravity. So we're not just doing that because it's in keeping with our mission. We're doing it because I genuinely believe that's how you get the best people. So I, I, I try and find sort of unrecognized hidden talent, the people who are a little bit contrarian have had an interesting life experience because I think that's what, what defines uh, high-performance people. So looking back now, could you imagine your life being where you are now? No, definitely not. It's, uh, yeah, you would have said three or four years ago that, We'd have 25 people in our team and we'd raised four million pounds of uh, investment from investors or that we run the biggest scholarship fund in the UK for low-income students. Like that would have been mind-blowing. Um, and yeah, I, I've ridden away. I, I'm a big believer that that everything compounds over time. And I think this is one of the tricky things about starting a business, which is I think the way to success is getting 1% better every single week. And if you get into that discipline and get that 1% per week growth, then you get that exponential uh, uptick over time. I think everyone understands that concept now because all the scientists used to talk about that when it came to COVID. How like, if, you know, if COVID increases 1% every week, actually everyone ends up, ends up getting it. So I think everyone understands the idea of compounding and be exponential. And I think that's the truth of growing a business. But the, the difficulty with that is that if you're only growing at 1% every week, often you can only see what's in front of you. And that makes it difficult to conceptualize how in three or four years time, you can be in a very different different place um, because because you can't see the overnight transformation. So my, my kind of lesson would be, don't expect to be an overnight success. No business is created overnight. Even the, the businesses that people think about as overnight successes like Facebook, in reality, it took years and years to grow and scale and get to where they are today. So just focus on getting 1% better every single week. And if you are someone who's disciplined, focus, you've got a good idea that is making impacts on the world, then you can get to a place in three or four years that will have seemed crazy at the beginning of your journey. Uh, uh, you touched me as well with Matthew side. I think it's a 10,000 hour principle, isn't it? It's the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that other people don't see. No, it's not an overnight success. You've got to put the hard yakker in beforehand to to do it. So with that in mind, would you do anything differently? Loads of things differently. Like, look, if I knew, when I was 21 starting this business, if I knew then what I know now, it would have been much, much easier. So there's all sorts of things I'd do differently. And, and this is where the power of mentors comes in. If you build a network of mentors around you, you can lean on the collective experiences of other people. I think as a young person, that's that's so important. Like you avoid so many mistakes 
and pitfalls in doing that. So if I was saving my time over again, I, I would have tried to build that group of mentors much earlier than I did. It, it kind of built organically over time, but I would have been more proactive about trying to trying to build that. And I would have been more focused as well. I, I think every passionate young entrepreneur believes that they can take over the world and build their empire. And yes, you want to do that, but the way you do that is by being hyper-focused. So like, rather than trying to do 10 things at once, I would have only tr- I would have tried to do three things better. And that, that's something I understand now. I didn't understand when I was 21. But let's start off by focusing on full arsing a couple of things rather than medium arsing everything. But I, I would have changed that as well. And the final thing is I, I, I would have like been more proactive as well about building a network. Like I, I didn't realize how powerful having a network was when I started. Like Because I'd come through the education system, I kind of believed everything was very academic. Like the people who had the best ideas, the best essay writing skills won the game. But that, that phrase that you know, who you know is just as important as what you know is is true, unfortunately. So you have to make sure that system works in your favor. And if you're not someone who inherits an incredible network through birth, you have to be proactive about building one. And growing to zero gravity to where it is today would have been impossible if I didn't have a network. Like getting that investment from investors, that required me to network relentlessly. Like I, I didn't know any billionaires when I was 21 years old. Didn't, didn't even know any millionaires. So like actually getting, finding those people who can invest in what I was doing required me to build a, a network. So if you are someone trying to grow an early stage business that requires investment, don't think everything's going to fall into place just by having a good idea and having good execution. You also need to focus on building that network as well. That is the deep, dirty secret of life that people from affluent backgrounds know, but a lot of people from low opportunity backgrounds don't. Yeah, like you say, it's opportunity, isn't it? That then creates your that's that's awesome stuff. You you talk about obviously the way the zero gravity works, but what kind of attributes um would start, are you looking for? And the reason for the question is to sort of suggest what types of things young people should be aspiring to do and achieve. So so what are the types of attributes you're looking for? You mentioned earlier uh, a bit, uh, an A and two Bs, but having a, a different kind of background or a low opportunity background would significantly uh, sort of attract you to that type of individual. Yeah, I think fundamentally we're looking for people who've overcome adversity and people who are outperformers. And like those are uh, outcomes in a way. So I think the attributes that drive those, I think one of the key ones is discipline. Like I said, I think so much of life is about just trying to get 1% better every day, every week. And to get on that growth curve, you have to have incredible discipline. If you want to be an incredible weightlifter, you have to go to the gym every day and get 1% better every week in terms of the weights you lift. If you want to be a great footballer, you have to you know, go to training every day, practice after training, get that 1% better every week at taking a free kick or hitting that crossfield ball. People understand that concept in the realm of sports, but that concept, I think, applies to wider life as well, whatever industry you're in. That having incredible discipline and sticking to that 1% better per week plan, I think, is, is really important. I think we also look for people who are contrarian, diverse thinkers that don't follow the crowd. If you follow the crowd and do the same as everyone else, you'll get a kind of normal median result. If you want to be someone who gets a top tier result, you have to think differently to everyone else. So provoke yourself, look at new ideas, don't follow the crowd 
avoid the trap of just doing what everyone else does. I think that's a really key attribute. And I think another one is also like it's corporate jargon, I suppose, but like resilience, like grit, bounce back ability. You know, the world is difficult and tough, especially if you're someone who comes from a background where you don't have a safety net. And that is just the way of the world. And actually, one of the best ways to you know, push your growth is just not to get knocked over by obstacles because you are going to face difficult moments. Things that you don't expect are going to happen. Your motivation is going to wax and wane. Being the person who can bounce back and get up when you get struck down is just as important as being the person who gets on that 1% growth curve. So yeah, discipline, contrarian thinking, having incredible grit as the world inevitably tries to pull you down. Like those are the three attributes that I think allow you to become out performer. Do you think certain classes have that more in spades than others? I, I, I'm just thinking out now, if you're from like a lower income, you're going to have that hunger. You're going to have that drive to get yourself out of that, right? Exactly. And, and this is why I think people who come from low opportunity backgrounds actually have a kind of hidden competitive advantage that often they don't realize, which is... Yes, we don't have access to the same resources as everyone else. But when it comes to the core attributes you need for success, you're more likely to have those developed in you by the environment you're from, right? Like if you are if you grow up in an anxious, difficult situation, uh, face childhood trauma, that's going to build a lot of resilience mm -hmm. uh, within you. If kind of falling by the wayside can lead you to like going to poverty, that's going to make you more disciplined. And if you grow up in an area where you're exposed to like lots of different types of people and not everyone thinks in the same way because they all go to the same set of universities or the same kind of boys club, you're probably going to be a more contrarian, diverse thinker. So people from low duty backgrounds actually have all the natural inherent characteristics you need to succeed. And I think actually realizing that, realizing you've got all the raw fundamentals and knowing that you just need access to resources, hopefully is a positive message for people who are watching this and no, don't come from wealthy families or don't live in a nice, nice area. And you have the materials to succeed. You just need to activate it. Listen, I'm conscious of your time. It's a Friday evening. I want to ask you one question. It's only a small one. What do you like your legacy to be? Not a small question at all, is it? <laughs> um, I think I didn't start Zero Gravity to, to make money. You know, we are a business rather than a charity. And, and the reason why that is, is I, I believe that solving this problem isn't just about doing the right thing, but about creating a more productive, better world for everyone. And I think there's huge business value in creating a society where people with talent get to the top as well as social value. I didn't start this business to make money. I, I started this business to try and have a legacy because I, I wanted to unlock the talent of people who didn't have opportunities served up some other plate because I, I think that is the most fundamental question of every single country in the world. Like this maybe sounds a bit grandiose, but I think civilizations live or die by their ability to use talent from all backgrounds. I, th I think we in the West have taken for granted our kind of supremacy when it comes to our beliefs, our values, our way of life that's now being challenged all over the world. And I think if we won the next, it's going to still be a century of you no know, liberal values, human rights, you no know, countries that work for everyone. We have to solve this problem of breaking that link between background and opportunity. If we don't have that, then the next century is not going to be a century 
of, of those values that we care about. So I think this is the big historical question that every society faces. So I would hope my legacy would be that zero gravity can help break that link and show a new way forward. So we don't have to accept the way things are. Things have changed dramatically over the past hundred years. And we can look back in a hundred years time and say things have got remarkably better. Brilliant stuff. No, I wish you the very, very best of luck with it. It's a fantastic, fantastic cause and I uh, good on you for doing it. Brilliant. Really appreciate that. Good stuff. As I say, I'm very, very conscious. You've had a massive week, massive couple of humps as well. So thank you very much for fitness in. Really do generally appreciate it. Good stuff. I'm going to go grab a beer now, but it's uh, great to uh, speak to you and any young people listening to this. Um, just know that if you do want to be an entrepreneur, it is possible to go on that crazy journey like I did. Get on that 1% better per week path and who knows what the future holds for you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Previous Learn as much as we did. Remember to follow, subscribe, review. It really does make a big difference to us on the podcast. So please, if you could take some time to do that, it would be much appreciated. Until next time, see you later.